Welcome to the Droma Preventative Health Podcast, hosted by the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. We provide you with up-to-date information on health topics geared towards the Orthodox Jewish community. This podcast content is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice or as a substitute for the medical advice of a physician. Welcome to the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association or JOMA podcast. I'm your host, Elisa Minkin. I'm a general pediatrician. And tonight I'm really honored and really excited to be interviewing Dr. Joseph Skelton. If there are topics you want to hear, if you want to be interviewed, or you know someone you want to be interviewed, or you have any comments on any of the podcasts we've done, please reach out to us at health, H-E-A-L-T-H at JOMA.org. We want to hear from you. I'm going to insert a trigger warning into today's topic because we will be talking about weight um, and treatment for um, weight-related issues. And it's super, super sensitive. And for some people, it may be too much. And so please take care of yourself. Dr. Skelton is a board-certified pediatrician and obesity medicine specialist. He has a particular interest in working with entire families to change behavior, as well as working with community organizations who have the same goals. He is founder and director of Brenner Fit, which stands for Families in Training, a family-based pediatric obesity program. They are active in clinical care, research, education, and community outreach. He conducts research focused on attrition from and adherence to treatment and how to incorporate the entire family system into healthcare. He also teaches medical students in a field called culinary medicine, which is a way to improve nutrition and health through cooking. Welcome, Dr. Skelton. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. No, oh, thank you. It's uh, this. Looking forward to talking. This is great. <laughs> yes, I've been very excited about this. Anybody who knows me knows this is a topic near and dear to my heart. So I'm really excited to have an actual specialist in the field of, I don't even know what to call it. Yeah. <laughs> no, we talked before this that, you know, yeah. the word obesity and overweight, those two words um, have become controversial. Sure. So um, there's a lot of words we could use instead, but. Um, but I think a safe thing, at least for what I do a lot clinically, the simplest way to say it would be sort of weight management. Um, mm-hmm. My ultimate goal, the reason I went to medical school, the reason I do this and what I hope when I retire, I think hopefully the language that we use, what I will be seen as doing is um, and, and I almost hate to say the word healthy, but helping people lead healthier lifestyles regardless mm. of your body size or weight, whatnot. Um, but as we'll talk a little bit about later, I almost sort of hate saying healthy because that can also be a loaded word. Um, you can see me on Friday night eating pizza and drinking a glass of wine and say, well, that's not healthy. But um, for, for me, it is. People right. talk about being at your happiest weight, but there, there's no denying the impact that you know lifestyle can have on our general health. And, and I like to keep focused on that versus just talking about weight. But I recognize it is a is a deep and wide field. It's very sticky and, and trying to account for all viewpoints can be difficult, but that's why I'm excited to talk to you about it. It's it's fun to it's fun to be able to talk with people that are are wanting to wrestle this as much as I like to wrestle with it. But but anyway, sorry. Right. 
I'm really happy and honored to have you because you really take a nuanced viewpoint. I feel like this has become a very polarized topic. Absolutely. And, and this is what we need more of. We need more people to, I mean, it, it's no different than our, 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 the U.S. government right now that, you know, we, we need more people having reasonable discussions yeah. and being able to say, I disagree. I could be wrong. You could be wrong. And let's, let's try to find common ground and find a path forward because none of us know the truth of this right now. You know, none of us know a hundred percent and we're all, you know, because we were saying that 10 years ago, we were saying that 20 years ago and 10 years from now, I fully admit that a lot of the things we might be doing right now could be wrong. And so I think that nuanced approach can oftentimes keep us from doing harm, which again, for those as the medical field, that that's, you know, the, the first thing on our oath is to do no harm. And exactly, exactly. And, and there's a lot of concerns with um, the current AAP obesity guidelines that have come out. I think that's really sparked a big firestorm and, you know, exaggerated the polarization further between basically two camps. I don't know if you want to go into kind of explaining the health at every size movement and the body positivity movement versus the medical view of obesity as a disease. Um, if I was a smarter man, I probably wouldn't wait into this. But I'm, I know, right? I, I, I just threw you in there. <laughs> exactly. And, and I, I mean, I, I have to say over and over, just I, I cannot speak for the the hey the health at every size group right. I've, I've i've done some education i've attended talks we every year my program um which is the brenner fit program here at wake forest school of medicine um we have every year so we have a Hayes um clinician come and speak with us i've been diving deep on this the reason i started listening to a lot of actually a lot of podcasts do a mm -hmm. lot of reading was um i think the medical literature literature doesn't capture the voice of the patient well enough. Right. Um, and so it's been extremely impactful for me to listen to a lot of the um, activists in that field. So I, I can't speak for them. I can tell you the impact it's had on me and some of the understanding how it's changed my, my way of thinking with that. Um, as a clinician that has cared for kids in larger bodies for um, going almost 20 years now, I, I feel like I've learned a lot, but also I think hearing the stories of people telling them versus me in a medical setting, trying to draw those stories out, they can be very impactful. And so um, I, I think I, you know, trying to present sort of a, being as agnostic as possible as I can about this, you know, the clinical practice guidelines, um, I have several very good friends, very good people that have been involved with that, who really did a hard look at the science. And that's what they were presenting. And they were presenting it from the standpoint of physicians who see kids um, who are being affected by being in larger bodies. And, and, I, and again, there, there's no perfect answer to this, but there's, there's larger bodies. If you look at me and you look at um, like my sister-in-law, we come from families with different size bodies. They're just smaller people in height and build and frame and weight compared to my family, which were just bigger people. We have broader shoulders, broader hips, things like that. But I think a lot of what we see in a clinical setting is I'm not going to call it obesity because the definition of obesity, by the way we define it as pediatricians, is numbers plotted on a chart that gives us that diagnosis of obesity. The, the, the problem that we see as clinicians is the issue of excess adiposity and that when we have a lot of particularly visceral adiposity, weighed around our midsections, we know that that's an inflammatory organ. It causes, um, probably the simplest way to say is it causes this ca uh, inflammation cascade that can affect 
almost every organ in our body. The people that did the clinical practice guidelines, that's where they came from. They came from that perspective of we are seeing kids with joint pain, sleep apnea, type 2 diabetes, um, risk of heart disease, worsening asthma. We see that's what we're wanting to address. I feel like when we just simply say it as an issue of obesity, then it gets to be an issue of weight and body size and the idea that we want people to be smaller. And I think going sort of the other side of the argument is they have seen and felt the harm of this focus on there. And I'm gonna try to come back to this later of all this is being done in this popular culture and the way we perceive beauty in this in this country. Right. I want to go back over excess adiposity because the guidelines are very driven by the use of the BMI. And I want you just to take a minute to talk about why we're using the BMI and not a more, you know, direct measure of adiposity. Yeah. And, um, and I think that's part of the arguments that you're seeing is that BMI is not perfect, so we have to ignore all the rest of this stuff. And BMI, BMI is absolutely not perfect, that you know, it does not account for lean muscle mass. It doesn't account for build. Um, it's, it's, you know, it goes back, I want to say it's like the early 1800s, and then it was really sort of brought more in the forefront with um, Ansel Keys, who's sort of the father of nutrition research in our country, who fully admitted that it was not a perfect measure, but overall said it's kind of the best that we have, that overall um, it is a, it's the best measure that, the easiest measure that we can use um, because it actually fairly, fairly well with excess adiposity. I can't quote you sensitivity specificity regarding that, but overall it, it's the easiest thing that we have to quickly capture excess adiposity. It's absolutely not perfect. It's absolutely not perfect. And I believe that I say it over and over. But when you look at a lot of the long-term studies that have looked at both health effects in children, health effects in adult, and I'm talking anywhere from cancer to heart disease, diabetes, those at a higher BMI tend to have a higher risk of long-term chronic disease. Um, some of the controversies that have come about that have been used as far as this argument that we need to totally abandon the BMI really comes down to a lot of controversies where those in the overweight category, this is mainly focused on adults, those in the overweight category necessarily didn't have um, higher rates of morbidity and mortality or higher incidence of morbid, um, adverse morbidity and mortality. And given some of the controversies that happened around that of some in the field wanted to say, hey, ignore all that research over there that says overweight is bad, is not bad for you, maybe even be protective if you have to ignore that. Um, I just think we've thrown a little bit of the baby out with the bathwater. BMI is the best thing I think that we have. It's not perfect. There is a movement, especially in Europe, to try to get a better measure of excess adiposity than BMI so we can focus on addressing that um, versus just addressing a BMI score. So BMI is not perfect. It's still okay. But, and actually what the old days they used to say, you got to use some judgment. Right. See the patient, get the numbers and see, see what other, you know, risk factors are associated with that. Right. I mean, wouldn't by definition, 5% of the population be above the 95th percentile? I mean, how do you know what's just a larger body that's healthy and what's not? 
Yeah. So the old argument that, you know, 95th percentile for BMI is, which is how we classify obesity, um, you know, that's based on a lot of old, a lot of old growth charts when only 5%. Um, and there's been some holes poked in that. And now how can we say that 17% of people fall into the 5%? <laughs> I, I get that. Um, I think we do have another big leap to make as far as saying, hey, what is that excess adiposity that is causing harm? I think in kids, I think our struggle is because we are so inherently focused on prevention with everything that we do. On one hand, the kids that I see, kids a lot of my colleagues see, we're seeing health problems arising from that excess adiposity, hypertension, diabetes, the whole thing. Um, I feel like where some of the gray area comes that maybe we've probably done some harm, um, likely we have done some harm is saying, yes, your numbers are fine. You child in a larger body, your blood pressure is good. Your blood works good. You have a good diet. You're physically active, but I need to get you into a smaller body in order to prevent health problems later on. And so a lot of discussions in the size acceptance movement that have really impacted me is to say, yes, you're saying your doctor, you're doing that, trying to prevent layer disease, but are you doing that as a reason to just focus on weight, just focus on being a mind, focus on trying to get this child into a smaller body, which then makes him feel like something is wrong with me and I'm not beautiful or worthy or intelligent because I'm in a larger body. Because that's what a lot of both the research says as well as what a lot of people have written about is how that makes them feel. So I do feel that's an area that I struggle with, that if I see a child that is overall healthy, but by numbers on a scale is a little bit bigger, I take a much different approach to that and which is crazy because we know that when kids feel bad they do bad if kids feel good they do good and so if kids don't like their bodies and we can contribute to that we know the world does but we can contribute to that if they feel bad about their bodies they're actually less likely to do well as far as changing behaviors and improving their health and so it gets to be this sort of catch-22 of like I want you to love who you are just as you are, but let's still focus on what I would want to do is let's focus on our health behaviors. Let's focus on being healthy so you can stay healthy the rest of your life. Unfortunately, I think what that can lead to is, yeah, you're healthy right now, but you're in a bigger body, but you need to be in a smaller body to prevent health problems later on. Is I think it's that prevention, the idea of prevention when there's presently no health problems, um, that I need you in a smaller body to prevent. And I think the attitude, but we, again, we don't know all the but, science on this. But, but is that even true? I mean, what if someone we, was we really, know. truly having healthy habits, emotionally healthy, physically healthy, they're just in a larger body. They're not, you know, gaining at a rapid trajectory, say a child's, you know, I see a lot of kids that are just steady on the 95th percentile. Honestly, yeah. I'm not worried about those. I'm more worried about the kids who have very unhealthy habits and are in smaller bodies. And there is disease burden in that population that I think we're missing because we're so focused on the numbers. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. I, I agree with that. And I will tell you, I'm, I'm struggling with it. I think other doctors are starting to struggle with that. I think a lot of us would tend to say, yes, but where you are on that growth curve, you're still set up for later problems. We don't know. I, I think that's a gray area. And I don't think we always know. That. I, some will just by how we are in the United States. You know, I think some will, but it's not necessarily because they're in a bigger body. We don't, we don't know that. And, and some people don't believe it. I think there's enough evidence to say there is metabolically healthy obesity. Some people tend to believe 
as long as there's excess adiposity around the midsection, it's a quote ticking time bomb. I think that's being a little dramatic about it. Right, but um, not only that, but we're not really measuring excess adiposity around the middle. We're measuring the BMI. Exactly. Right. Right. I, they, like I said, there is a movement in Europe that we need to do a little bit better job than that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, uh, to be honest, in these quick visits, the BMI is quick and dirty. It comes up in your EMR in bright red once you get to 95th percentile, yeah, as opposed to all well, these other caliper measures and measuring the midsection, which would also have room for error anyway. So, yeah. And like you said, yeah. there's a lot of kids that are in, quote, health, I, I, I struggle with the term healthy weight. They prefer us to use the term healthy weight over um, normal weight. I think mm-hmm. both those terms are maybe not are loaded, yeah. good because I see all kinds of kids in a quote, at a healthy weight category with horrible habits, with right. horrible health habits. And, and, and that's something that is a big tenant of the health at every size field, as I've read, again, I cannot represent them. Um, but what they say is you know, it, it, they fight against the myth that smaller bodies are inherently healthier than larger bodies. And I absolutely and positively believe that. Um, that that is not always true that a smaller body uh, that may have come out wrong I do not believe that a smaller body is inherently healthier than a larger body right or that a larger body is necessarily unhealthy unhealthy right right and both sides yeah right I want to talk for a minute about medical stigma I think this is a good chance for us to talk about that mm-hmm. and also fat bias and fat yes, bias and healthcare professionals <laughs> and I you know and I think we're we're extremely aware of that I think we fight against it I think you know I think that is on everyone's radar you know, we all struggle with it. You know, we right. all struggle, you know, with implicit bias, implicit racism, you know, stru- in, you know, institutional racism. I think the same thing goes for weight bias is we can say all day, but there is that implicit weight bias test that you can take mm-hmm. and it horrifies you when you take it. Because right. I did. I have yeah, it. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and we all do. And I think, I, I sometimes think that bias saying over and over that we don't have weight bias and I'm fighting against it, that means we don't have it. And again, we, we know that's not true. Um, you know, I've dedicated my career to this and I will tell you, I see it creeping in to myself. I can see, I have reactions to it and, and sort of fighting against it. And it's going to come out in the care oftentimes of liver. And when you, I talked about institutional racism, you think about institutional um, weight bias of the furniture in our waiting room. You know, we had to fight to get you know, what they call bariatric furniture, but furniture just to hold larger bodies. And what I hate to tell them is, you know, there, you know, this chair that only holds up to 250 pounds, I weigh 245 pounds, you know, we, we have to look at the furniture that we have all across our hospital, right. and not just in our clinics that um, are, are focused on people in, in larger bodies. And so I, I do think that's a huge aspect of that. And, and I don't mean to disparage my colleagues, but just saying that we're aware of it, we're fighting against it, does not mean the problem is solved. But and- not at all. And also, a lot of people complain. They go to the doctor, and the first thing that's focused on is their weight against their will sometimes. They're coming for some other reason. Mm-hmm. And that, that's yeah. a whole separate issue. I mean, yeah. now I want to talk about how do we even, as clinicians, deal with this? I mean, <laughs> we're stuck on what word can I use? What can I say? I feel like I'm walking on eggshells. Yeah, well, let me go back to that a little bit. There is some evidence, and this comes from, you know, looking at the impact that racism has on health. And mm-hmm. that's been known for a while that racism, you know, and I'm, I'm going to way simplify it, but that inf- impacts health because we have poor health care delivery to mm-hmm. people of color as well as the inherent stress that comes from being exposed to and the trauma that comes from being exposed to racism. 
there's evidence that that also applies to people in larger bodies that, you know, they get poor healthcare delivery, they get poor individual attention from um, their medical provider. And oftentimes they don't want to go to the doctor because of the, some of the things that you've said and that we'll talk about. And then also the stress that comes from living in a fat phobic society or in people that are biased against people in larger bodies. So there's some evidence that, that those two things are a big contributor to the extra morbidity mortality mm-hmm. that we see in people in big bodies. But I would also say we have tons of scientific evidence that it is that excess adiposity is also right. contributed to that. But that doesn't mean we have to ignore. I mean, you don't have right. to be either or with that. Right. Two I mean, things can be true. I think they're right. both true. And it's something that we have to do a better job. Um, I, you know, and and it's gotten better over the years, but in my career, you know, we're kind of selective who we send our patients to. And I and I hear that that became common language within our program of um, you know, I, I and again, it's gotten a lot better. I'm not disparaging my colleagues here, but in particular, there's one um, OBGYN that we work with that sees our kids with um, abnormal uterine bleeding and PCOS. And then the reason is, the quote is, she's good to our patients. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, I shouldn't have to ask anyone to be good. Like, you know, you should be good to every, I should be, you should be good to every single one of my patients and I should be good every single, I, should, I shouldn't have to selectively send my patients to people because I know that they'll be kind to them and they'll treat them with respect and it won't immediately go back to this. You need to lose five percent of your body weight. Yeah. So it's- but, but they mean well though. It's not like racism. This is something where it's medically what we're taught. Yes. Focus on the weight. Help yeah, they them mean lose well, the weight. But, but again, there's plenty of evidence that how we perceive people in larger bodies. Mm-hmm. I might tell you to lose weight because I mean well because I want you to be healthier, but if that's coming from a uh, if it's coming from a, a feeling of, you know, I, I think negatively about you because you're lazy, you're not taking care of yourself, you're not eating right. I can tell you to lose weight, but it might be coming from a, you know, might be coming from a, a heart filled with sort of not very positive feelings um, with that. And I, I, something that I see a lot, and we try to counsel a lot of our colleagues on is the idea of um, not getting frustrated with patients, you know, telling them to go lose 10 pounds and they could get off their blood pressure medications and then they don't, we're frustrated with them. Well, we know it's extremely hard to not only lose weight, but keep weight off in the long term. So don't be getting frustrated. Their bodies fight against them in trying to lose weight. So don't be frustrated that your recommendation to lose weight when that recommendation, it, it, it's not an easy thing. And that's one thing I've, I've really picked up from a lot of listening to um, fat activist and uh, mm-hmm. the size acceptance movement is, hey, you're recommending something that there's not a lot of good treatment. And I'm going to put a big asterisk by that, that there's not a lot of good treatment options. So why are you, why are you checking my weight, telling me to lose weight when the ability to do that is so tough? Um, like you're telling me to go do something that 95 to 99% of people tend to fail at, at the long term. And again, big asterisk by that, we have better treatments now. But like, why recommend that if I can't go do that? Which is something that's come up with the clinical practice guidelines is, you know, there's very few comprehensive programs like we have here. Very few people have access to these new expensive medications. Um, So why are we telling everyone to intervene early, intervene at the highest level possible when they don't have those, those resources? And so I've heard that from a lot of general pediatricians is, hey, I don't live in a town, I don't live in a city that has a trained professional, that has a multidisciplinary program, so what am I supposed to do? And, and I think that's a reasonable point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, 
but I think, you know, I think they came out those guidelines saying, hey, we need new and better treatment. You know, we're, we're pediatricians, we advocate, but I think it was received in a way sometimes that I, I can understand that. Why are you telling me to screen and to treat when I don't have a treatment? Right. What does treat mean? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, you, you, you alluded to the fact that most people do not on their own sustain a weight loss, right? I mean, basically, consign, you know, sum that up as diets don't work. Right. I think that's the one place where health at every size and the AAP guidelines agree. Diets don't work. Right. I don't know if you want to and, elaborate on that for a minute. Right. And there's, and some of the less informed pop shots at the clinical practice guidelines don't, you know, if they read them carefully, they would say you don't, you don't diet. You don't put people on diets. You focus on healthy habits. You focus on good eating patterns. You don't put people on diets. And so some of the news things I've been reading of like, why are you putting a five-year-old diet? No pediatrician in the world will put a five. Well, they shouldn't put a five, you know, five-year-old on diet. We don't recommend that. So it's not, we don't, we, we don't agree with that either. Um, and so I tell you, I think, I think something that maybe not as written about as much that I think a lot of people who dive deep into this is when we first, when we begin treatment with the family, one of the first things that we have to do, and we're not always successful, is undoing the diet mentality of the, of the culture that we live in. Um, we have to help, you know, we have to teach them, hey, guess what? There's a lot of this is genetics. Any behaviors that you have that could be contributing are not your fault. It's because we live in a world that encourages those behaviors. So not only are we I don't like using that sort of toxic environment anymore, um, but you know the idea that our world is, you know, the, our food environment, our food systems are built um, to deliver food to us in very calorically dense and inexpensive ways, and we're living in bodies that are sort of made to gain weight. Some of us are more genetically predispositioned to be at a heavier weight, um, and then we live in a diet culture of influencers telling you all these different stupid ways that we can lose weight. We have to undo a lot of that. And that's hard. I mean, if they've grown up, especially and and I hear either or I hear some parents that have always been on that treadmill of trying to lose weight and diet and exercise, and they want help with their kids doing it. And so that's a hard battle to fight sometimes, you know, saying, hey, it didn't work in our generation. It's definitely not going to work in our children's generation. It doesn't work. We got to look at this from a different perspective. What I love is when parents come in and say, I was raised hating my body. I don't want my child to hate their body, but I do want them to be healthy. And I'm like, okay, we can work with that. Absolutely. And let's talk about ways that we can do this in a positive way. Our, the, the motto in our program is providing care that is safe, effective, and kind. That it's safe, that it's not only going to prevent eating disorders, which again, there's a lot of research that supports doing this in a behaviorally non-diet way you can actually protect against eating disorders. So safe, not only protecting these disorders and also safe in the fact that we don't wanna hurt relationships. You know, we don't want the parent feeling like they need to be the food police and the child, you know, feeling, feeling very negatively about themselves and feeling like they're a failure because they're not liking the food that's, um, you know, just that there is a lot of tension that could be, be caused in a family in pursuing weight management has not been studied hardly at all. So safe, it can be effective. And, you know, one of the most important things of being effective is not doing diets, you know, not giving but why up. though? I, I want you just to be, to spell it out right now. Please. Yeah. So any, you know, a diet is, it's, oh God, this goes really deep, especially with kids. 
But a diet of where you're trying, and actually that's an eating disorder risk, is right. caloric, caloric restriction with the goal of losing weight. That's one definition of a diet and is an absolute risk factor for eating disorders. Another one is giving up entire food groups with no proof that it's going to actually be effective. Um, you know, giving up all carbohydrates because it's, you know, causing weight gain and insulin resistance and stuff like that. Um, you know, in any way that we can't eat naturally in the real world is, is just going to fail over time. You know, diets work in the short term because they give you, here's what you do, A, B, C, and D. There's no learned skills with it. Right. You're following a plan versus learning how to eat in our real world. For a normal, busy family, you're going to get takeout. You're going to eat out. I love restaurants, you know, love, you know, eating at restaurants, um, you know, just learning to enjoy food. I mean, food is definitely part of our culture and we don't want to take that away from people because food is an important part of our culture and trying to get them to live separately than that is extremely lonely. One of our best friends had a period of time, she was a macrobiotic vegetarian in Austin, Texas in the 1980s. And I said, <laughs> when did you stop doing that? She said, when I was home alone on a Friday night, stirring my green tea, Aww. I said, I can't do this anymore. Um, so it's, yeah, Yoni Friedhoff in Ottawa. Um, your happiest weight being I'm healthy and I'm healthy in a way and I'm at a weight where I can still enjoy life versus being by yourself alone on a Friday night, stirring your green tea type of thing. And then being kind about it, you know, just not making people feel like failures. Um, you know, I'm here to support you. I'm not here to scold you because you didn't lose a pound or you didn't change this habit. It's hard. And you can be understanding and supportive of that. Um, I it's generally it's generally credited to, to uh, Teddy Roosevelt, even though no one really knows who first said it. But I preach this all the time, and I think I offend a lot of medical professionals. When it's a saying of "I don't care how much you know until I know how much you care," right. and anyone that goes into medicine cares about their patients. But you got to make sure that they feel that you care. Um, you know, it's a classic parenting thing is, you know, everyone knows that you love your children, but you might not do things um, in a way that their kids feel loved. You know, it's the idea of an overly strict parent that you're doing it out of love, but you need to make sure that your kid feels the love. And we need to do that with our patients. We need to provide care, but do it in a way that they know that we care. So saying you need to lose 10 pounds if you're going to get for blood pressure medications, Theoretically, that might come from a place of care and love, um, but it wasn't done in a way that they're going to feel that. So, sorry, way off topic there. I think, right. So. No, no, it's all valuable. Um, I'm still stuck on the diets don't work because, yeah. you know, you did talk about how basically if you have a diet that's not sustainable, then you're going to regain the weight. But isn't there also changes in your metabolism where it actually you go into conservation mode and then you actually have the weight cycling. You yeah, can there's, me on this. there's several different good, good science to sort of support this. Um, so the biggest one is when you do start to lose weight, um, the simplest way to say it is you do start to get a change in metabolism with that. Um, a lot of that comes because, because when you do lose weight, you're losing both lean as well as fat mass. So you're losing muscle as well as fat. And that and so that's one the newest recommendations are to focus a little bit more on strength training to try to minimize the lean muscle mass loss. And so when you lose that muscle, you're actually 
losing, you know, your muscles are going to be burning a lot more energy than, you know, the fat that you're losing. And so when you lose some of that muscle, your energy expenditure starts to go down a little bit. Um, then there's all these feedback mechanisms that um, kick in that actually, actually start to drive up your hunger a little bit. So those things start to fight against. You're going to burn a little bit less calories when you lose weight. Plus, your body's going to try to get back to that previous weight by increasing your hunger a little bit. Aside from that, and these things haven't been studied um, within themselves, and this actually came from the Minnesota Starvation Study, which I'd like to remind you, those, those fellows were on like 1,600 calories a day, and it was called the Starvation Study, and that's like a very typical weight loss diet um, nowadays, but it's been well described how those participants became quite obsessed with food um, because they were restrict, restricting, and that's a huge thing that we try to focus on with kids and there's plenty of research around that is the more that we try to restrict or pressure and we call those two sides of the same coin the more kids feel restricted they're told not to eat you know you can't have seconds of that have you eaten enough you can't have dessert you know the when kids feel restricted there's plenty of evidence that that disrupts their normal relationship with food and their hunger cycles and actually their hunger and complaints of hunger start to go up Right. Um, and this kind of goes into the different sort of parenting styles with that. It's been very well described that when kids feel restricted or they feel pressured, you need to eat more fruits and vegetables. I'm going to restrict you. You can't have seconds on your meat, but I'm going to pressure, but you need to eat your fruits and vegetables, especially if you want dessert. All that stuff backfires. Right. And so again, recognizing the other side of the aisle here and the complaints against trying to do weight, man weight management with kids, that's what we've done a lot in the past. What is one of the number one, number two, rec the two top recommendations that are generally, there's a lot of us sort of pushing against that now, eat more fruits and vegetables. We all need to eat more fruits and vegetables, period. Great health habit to have. But the more that we try to push fruits and vegetables on kids, the more they're not going to like it. The more we pressure that, the more that's going to backfire. And then reduce portion sizes. I hate that one, especially. Because the more that we try to serve kids less, especially right. when do kids want bigger portions? When do kids want seconds? When it's the food they really like. Right. And the more that we try to restrict that, the more they actually want more of that. So it's that pressure and restriction, two sides of the same coin that we really try to lift the families. Now, don't misinterpret that. If we give that message too simply, people tend to interpret that as, oh, so kids get to eat whatever they want, whenever they want. No. You're still the parent. You're the provider. You can set up the schedule right. of when we're eating. You buy and purchase, oftentimes prepare the food, and we set up a time to eat together. You're still in charge of a lot of that. And as with all good parenting, all healthy households, it's all about structure. Kids knowing what, what to expect. They know that we eat at a table. We try to eat at a table as much as we can as a family together. And that, you know, that the kitchen is not 24-7 because oftentimes those foods that we want to eat that we see a lot is when we're oftentimes not hungry and it's the snack foods that are setting off our hunger and things like that. that that's a whole other discussion, but. Right, so right. I'm going to link, by the way, to the to multiple podcasts that I've done related to this. On, you're talking about responsive feeding and Ellen Satter's division Ellen of responsibility. Satter, yeah. yeah. So I've done a whole bunch on this. Sure, sure. Yeah, and, so this yeah. goes right into that. And we incorporate that a lot into the care that we deliver of. And oftentimes by the time families come to us, they fought about the what of food a lot you know, pushing fruits and vegetables, don't eat too much of that. So we oftentimes try to diffuse that tension by saying, hey, tell you what, for right now, keep eating the food, especially for parents that don't like to cook, keep eating the food that you're already eating. Let, you know, let's quit fighting about what food you're eating. 
But let's try to set structure up in the home, which bleeds over into so many other things, bedtime, you know, media use, things like that. And let's set up a structure that we eat at certain times of the day. Let's plan a snack, whether you want it or not. Oftentimes, uh, talk a lot about that, about the idea of, you know, when kids are little, when they say they're hungry, we know they're hungry. They're much more in tune with their hunger. That actually starts to disappear around seven years of age. They get to be more like us where their hunger can be set off by seeing food, smelling food, and thinking about mm. food. So it's a classic thing. And I say this, and parents are like nodding, and you're going to nod too. Of You're there preparing dinner, and your kids come in, and dinner's still about an hour away. Well, I'm hungry. I'm hungry. Can I have a snack? You're not going to starve. And again, I'm not saying starve your kids, but you know they're not so hungry that they can't wait to sit down and eat with you at a dinner. And actually, if they're really hungry coming in there, they're going to eat whatever you're serving. There's an old saying of hunger is the best sauce for a food. <laughs> um, but we're so conditioned that when kids say they're hungry, that we really believe they're hungry and we got to answer that hunger right there. And it's usually around seven years of age, which actually coincides with sort of the end of the adiposity rebound of the thinnest kids are. It actually is when kids come out from being, and I'm not going to say picky because a lot of that pickiness in the toddler ages is not pickiness. It's just toddler behavior um, that we can't always just, Assume when they said, if you know they're eating on a schedule, if you're feeding them three meals and one, two snacks a day, you know they're getting what their body needs. And so in the complaints of hunger, if you're feeding three meals a day and one to two snacks, you know there's food coming up sometime in the next couple hours. You don't necessarily need to address hunger now. And again, I'm talking about sort of older kids, um, but getting parents to sort of realize to break out of that idea of when my kid says I'm hungry, I got to answer that. You know, there's some grandma coming around the corner with food in her purse to give you know, it's, it's feed your kids on a schedule, get them used to eating on a schedule. Let's break that tension over what we're eating and focus on when and where we're eating. And I, so I tend to say it is how we're eating. Let's eat together. Let's, let's prepare food together. You know, that's one of the quickest ways. I just got an email from my med student working with me. They did a cooking class with teenagers. Kids are eating veg, the kids are eating vegan, sweet potato, black bean, chili. What? Because, because <laughs> right. Because they made it. And, they, and that there is a lot to that. I just kind of poo-poo that research, but it's actually real research. The more kids are involved with that, the, open, the more open they are to other flavors and foods. I'd love to hear more about your culinary program now. Oh, yeah. it's, it's too much fun. It's getting in the way of my other academic pursuits. That's why <laughs> I do it with the med students. And the, and the student, med students love it and they love doing it. And I love it because it gets out of their head. But because, and we actually did this own research. We published on this. Most nutrition education that our med students have coming into med school is stuff they've learned on their own, yeah. internet, social media influencers, stuff like that. And we need, then we teach them the hardcore biochemistry of it. And we teach them idealized nutrition. And this is teaching them real world nutrition. Practical, People talk right. about culinary medicine being applied nutrition, and they can realize food can be fun. Food is part of our culture and it's part of our patient's culture. You need to recognize that instead of telling them not to eat it. Mono, the, I have a Spanish-speaking team um, in my program, and they have written an article that we're going to submit for publication, and it's called, and, and they're all, several of them are native Spanish speakers, and the name of the paper is Leave My Tortilla Out of This, <laughs> because that's one of the number one things that comes up, and we convince a lot of our Latinx parents that your kids are eating too many tortillas, um, and, and I'm, I'm just stereotyping with that. And, or too much and, rice, right? Right, and lay off that. You know, it's, you know, it, it's many, many other things, including their biology, their genetics, physiology, and other aspects 
um, of, of the world that we live in. It has nothing to do with the tortillas. Okay. I need to get back to the regular pediatrician. It's interesting that you said that because I interviewed um, an internist and she was talking about how she has her little spiel that she gives to her patients, including cutting back on white rice. And she had an Asian patient say, no, 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 that's, that's again, leave my white rice alone. <laughs> so what are we supposed to do as doctors? We have 10 minute visits. So that, and that is a tough one. And, and I would, first of all, is sort of take the pressure off um, of, of needing to sort of cover that. So what I do, and because again, it's also not our forte of going into a lot of nutrition education. I tend to focus on, first of all, there, there is a little bit of that of, like I said, helping to understand, ignore everything you're hearing out there. And in particular, and this is a, something I've also learned from the size acceptance community, is all these influencers trying to teach you about nutrition and exercise and weight loss, none of them, hardly any of them have ever had an issue with their weight. And first of all, and second of all, when we go and look at the information they're delivering, a lot of it is just not very sound anyway. So, you know, in that short 10 minutes, for me, I like to focus a lot on the how we eat. Mm -hmm. I like to talk about setting up a schedule around eating. Um, I'm, I'm very careful that I would say rules, but the idea of the rules that we want to set up are, hey, we're going to eat at a certain time. And tell you what, let's plan your after school snack. Um, let the kids sort of plan it, even if it's crappy crap start with that until they get used to the idea that I'm eating a snack after school. And sometimes they won't even like snack. What we realize is when we sort of lift some of that pressure, you'll notice that kids will start to get a little bit more in touch with their hunger a little bit more. And you start seeing food left on the plate. You start seeing the salad being eaten with it. You start to see a little bit of the exploration with that. So I focus on the how we eat when I just have a few minutes with that. And then I'll even get try to get the focus off of the food for a while. Let's talk about sleep. You know, let's talk about time we spend together as a family, um, trying to get these other things that are laying the foundation. I, the analogy that I always use is, you know, if you, I ask you to describe your dream house, you start talking about the windows and the yard and the kitchen and stuff like that. You don't talk about the plumbing, the electrical work, the foundation, but you have to have those things. And so I get families to think about the foundation of where of how they want to live in a healthy way. Let's talk about sleep schedule. Let's talk about are we eating meals on a schedule or are we just eating when we're hungry? Are we skipping meals and stuff like that? Are we planning it? Are we planning that after school snack or do we come home and open up the fridge? And as research says, we're going to end up finding the tastiest food that's at eye level, um, which when I had my nephew living with us during COVID, that was always hot wings. And I open it up, suddenly I'm craving hot wings because that's what I just saw. And so I try to get, I try to use that time to focus on how we eat. And then another time we'll talk about how we are active. And again, it's about the schedule. There is time for electronic use. There's time for watching movies together as family. Then there's time for that stuff to be shut off. There's time for homework and there's time to be active and find those activities that families like to do either individually or, or doing together. My son is fishing right now. That's something, and I'm not fussing at him because it's not getting his heart going and not building strength, right. but it's something that he enjoys and it's something that's getting him outside and socializing with friends. So talking a little about how we are healthy, trying to live healthy versus what we are doing to live healthy. I think those are all great tips. And I think they're also preventative. In many ways, absolutely. Yeah. Many ways. yeah. And, and for me, it's all about getting the family to talk about that. Um, that's something that I'm sort of obsessed with. It's sort of my research is the idea of what aspects of the family are we not looking at that we're ignoring? How can we get families to communicate better? That's one study my colleague Callie Brown had done 
after hearing a conversation that we're having about communication within a family. And so she did this and find that families that had lower communication scores, lower quality communication within the family, whoever that parent was in that clinic visit talking about weight issues with the pediatrician, they were way less likely to go back and tell their partner about it. But if the family had good communication, they were much more likely to go home and share with the partner. Our dog just got spayed. My wife picked our dog up. I needed to know what the plan was. Now, just imagine she comes home and she doesn't tell me anything about what I'm supposed to be doing, how I'm supposed to care for the wound, what sort of medicines I'm supposed to give the dog. You got to get families being able to talk about some of these things, um, which, again, that's where sort of the family meal research comes in. Families that eat meals together communicate better and it has many other spillover effects to the rest of the um, to the rest of their lives. Right. You know what I also struggle with is just valuing healthy eating habits and nutrition. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know I only have a short period of time, so I refer to nutritionists that um, take more of a non-diet approach. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I have a hard time getting people to go, <laughs> even if I find my, coverage for them, yeah, which so, is a whole separate issue. Yeah. So two, two things on that. So one, as I talked about earlier, is you're not going to hear me say healthy a lot. Um, because if you and I were doing this interview in person um, and you said, hey, I brought a healthy snack, part of me would go, uh, you know, <laughs> I've, been, I've been to New York. I, actually, my initial training in this work was out in uh, New Hyde Park at LIJ out there. Oh, sure. Um, and one thing I discovered, I, again, I love accents. And this uh, guy from Queens uh, sold potato knishes, and I kind of fell in love with that. And so if I was up doing this with you, I would really hope you would serve me a potato knish. But if you said, hey, I have a healthy snack, part of me would go, uh, I, you know, okay, because it's probably, so, and the reason I say that is when right. I say a healthy snack, what am I thinking? Taste. Something not yummy, right. Right, right. And so we, we first thing we tell families is just don't talk about healthy, you know, because if you say, hey, I'm at a healthy dinner or mom, dad, why are we having this fish? Oh, it's healthy. What do kids think? What do we think as adults? You just said it. it's like, oh, it's not going to taste good. So if Wait we a second. that to kids, it's going to bias them, bias them against healthy. I'm going to just say here that food can be and should be both healthy and yummy. <laughs> Absolutely. One of the reasons those kids like sweet table chili is it was really, really good. Right. Absolutely. Healthy food can taste great. But if we start saying that, we're automatically biased against it. I think that's coming out of diet culture, to be honest. Oh, absolutely. You ever open up a cookbook where there's the diet recipes? <laughs> Those yeah. are the healthy ones. It's a synonym. Right. And, I mean, you got you and I are about the same age, the low-fat 80s and 90s, of course. Right. A lot of untasted Snack well. <laughs> stuff, and then a lot of stuff with a lot of carbohydrate and sugar right. into it. No, absolutely can be healthy, but we just sort of say, take that out of it, you know, right. just make it sort of a stealth intervention with that. Um, so one of those reasons is we send people to learn how to sort of eat healthy, the dietitian, they're automatically going to go and to that with a negative attitude. And also I think they take they take that diet culture and they're seeing the dietitian nutritionist through the eyes of that. Oh, if I go to them, they're gonna take away this food. They're gonna take right. away my panada conditions or in my culture, they're gonna take away grits from that. And that that's oftentimes why they don't they oftentimes don't want to go. And also, and I hear this from a lot of dietitians, because of the poor reimbursement, they think I'm probably only going to get to have one visit with this family. Um, and we do the same thing. Of, So I need to give them as much right. information as in. possible. Yeah. I need to teach them as much as possible. And, 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 and 
and it ends up giving, so it ends up sort of overwhelming and they didn't really get much at it. Versus if you look at what my dietitians cover, sometimes it seems to be so small, but oftentimes they're talking about, all right, you want to add in an after-school snack. Okay, so let's talk about a good snack. It's going to have two food groups is sort of an ideal snack. What are some foods that you like? Let's talk about that. Let's try to pair those up. How are you going to be able to put that into place? How can we plan to have it? Who's going to do? So getting down to the nitty gritty of what takes to put that in place versus let me just overwhelm you. Because, you know, this is not a, it, you know, the, it's not ignorance of nutrition that caused an issue with weight in this country. Um, I think we could all, you know, I think there's some people that need to learn. So, you know, one of the things that, you know, we do teach is, hey, remember starchy vegetables don't, you know, it, your body is going to see it more as a starch and less as a vegetable, not making it bad, not making it good, but just sort of covering some basic tenets like that. But none of those are huge contributors, contributors to issues with bad eating. We, our families know, you know, they, they know the food, they know fast food is not necessarily a good thing to do. They know that skipping breakfast is not um, necessarily a good thing to do. It's not a lack of education. That's caused right, food. right. I think that's also a problem is that, you know, patients or parents know a lot and we're thinking there's a knowledge deficit. Right. And, and there might be a tiny bit, but that's right. not the main issue. That's not the main issue. The main issue is, well, there might not be a main issue. It might, you know, that's the thing of sort of getting to know the families, but also figuring out, hey, so, because again, my long-term goal is we're launching kids as healthy as they can be into adulthood. And for me, for me personally, and I'm hopefully more and more, and it sounds like you too, it's less about where they fall on a scale and more right. it falls on with, are they getting enough sleep? Are they happy? Are they eating two to three meals a day? You know, um, you know, are they moving their body? You know, lots of these other health habits, which we then have to back up and think from an adult perspective. We, we sometimes forget with all these arguments still, you know, as, as much as I've changed the way I think about this, diet is still linked and I'm using diet in the term of what we eat is right. still linked to a lot of ill health effects. So, you know, for, just for, focusing on the weight might not be the issue, but I think, I think we could all do. And again, that's where the health at every size movement comes from. Right. Hey, let's focus on healthy living without the issue of weight being brought into it. Right. That's really, really important. And that's the tack I try to take also, because sometimes a family will focus on the one child who is you know, with the weight issue in the larger body, and they think that they don't have to change. Everybody needs to eat healthy. Yeah. And that's the way it should be. It should be a family approach, which is what I know you do. I, uh, something that we see all the time, and I have talked to several feeding experts in the country, trying to pick this apart, but I think it gets down to the family dynamics. Something that we see a lot, and I'm saying once a month, probably, um, over 15 years is we will see, and it's typically a, a, a girl 10 to 14 years of age, and she has a thin brother, a skinny brother, even you'd say, that is really picky. And the dynamic that you see is this pressure on the girl to eat better and, you know, not eat too much, lose weight. And the, but the whole time she's looking at this other child who gets typically, and not, not, again, not every family falls into this category. We see this a lot in our program, sees this picky, skinny brother getting whatever he wants, right. whenever he wants all day. So obviously that's an incredibly complex dynamic and the approach is the same, you know, boy and girl, we're going to eat on a schedule, right? You know, I am serving one meal for the whole family. Ellen Satter talks about being considerate, but don't cater, right. make sure there's something 
on that meal that right. you're serving that they'll eat, but you're not making separate meals for everyone. And we're going to have scheduled snacks because that's why all these kids are not going to eat at regular times is because I don't like my meal, but I know an hour later I can say I'm hungry and I'm going to get something, you know, already prepared, some cr crunchy, salty, or sweet that can be pulled out immediately. My son used to do this. Um, you know, he would always run late, so he would miss breakfast or wouldn't get to eat that much. And as soon as we get in the car and we pull out of the neighborhood, he starts saying he's hungry. And it, we picked up on it pretty quickly. And, you know, no parent likes their kid to be hungry, but you know what? He was not going to starve to death. He was going to eat again in a couple hours. He was just sort of playing, playing on our sympathies. Right. I would love a more weight neutral approach in pediatrics in general, because I do think that just as we overfocus on the overweight, we also overfocus on the so-called underweight. And a lot of these kids are just healthy and thinner bodies. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Both of those kids are probably okay. Yeah, we have a good friend that she talks about that. And she would go for like a sick visit and see one of the partners who would kind of become obsessed with your child's really underweight. And then they see the regular doctor, they're like, you know, I know you all this Right. It's been small all of her life. You guys give me a great report of what she's eating. I don't have any concerns with it. But again, that's just focusing on the numbers on the computer screen in front of you instead of the patient that's in, in front of you with that. So, and again, I, I think a weight neutral approach, because right. then again, a perfect world, and maybe we need to do this. And we're playing around with some of these ideas with our electronic health record is, hey, maybe we need to quit focusing on health behavior counseling on just those kids and adults and bigger bodies, right. maybe we need to focus on everyone. Hello. But, yeah. Yes. But I have to counter a little bit and say, right. you know, we do see kids with excess adiposity, with right. high blood, that they're having right. health problems related to their weight. And guess what? We have good behavioral treatment. We have good, um, you know, we have good drug treatment now if we can get access to it. You know, and I think, I think that hopefully will be sort of the end of, you know, People like you and me have these conversations. Hey, let's take a broader approach because a lot of adults with, I'm going to say it, with obesity and with weight-related comorbidities were normal weight as children. Mm -hmm. And it developed over time. We could focus on prevention for everyone and we need to find better ways to do that and sounder ways to do that instead of recommendations to eat healthier, eat more fruits and vegetables, smaller portion sizes, things like that. We need to take a smarter, more behaviorally focused approach to prevention but we still need that treatment for kids who, whose health is being affected. I think the tough part, and I don't have an answer to this, the tough part is because of the culture that we live in and the, in the, um, you know, the cultural bias against larger bodies is what do we do about those kids who want to lose weight for appearance? And, and I think that's a tough one to, in this ideal world that we're talking about. And I think what we're moving towards that's a tough one um, because they're coming to you wanting medications, wanting those diets, wanting those things lose weight. Well, obviously there's all those things we don't want to do because we don't want to do harm. Um, and, and you know what? I can't change how a parent sees their kid's weight. I can try and sometimes I'm successful, but you know, I think that's the tough one that we have to deal with is what do we do for those families that want their kids in a smaller body? Um, I, I think you know, we, we have to change the narrative around this. We have to change conversations around what is beauty and health and things like that. But that's some of the tougher conversations that we have is when they're coming to us and, and why my team is rethinking the term weight management program because of that, because people are coming to us to address their weight. And sometimes it's for appearances. Um, and, you know, I, I, 
you know, I, th that, that discussion is sort of beyond me, but right. what I, I try to address is doing no harm is, you know, Hey, and what a move that I do is when negative comments start being made about the child's health habits or their weight. Um, I ask the kid to leave the room. I'll right. just say, Hey, I'm going to have boring adult talk with your mom or your dad, you know, you want to go wait. You don't want to hear all this. You want to go wait out in the waiting room. And, and then I, I don't scold the parents. I'm not trying to make them feel bad. But what I'll say is, you know, I, I, I appreciate and actually I very deeply understand what you're feeling right now. But you have to realize how this is making your child feel. And you might be wanting, don't get me on trying to scare patients, ugh, but you might be wanting to instigate some change in your child, but that's not going to, that's not the way to do it. Right now, you're just making them feel bad about themselves. And that is not, when kids feel bad, they do bad. And they're not right. going to make changes related to that, which again, I just foreshadowed to that. We all recognize that scaring patients do, does not work, but it still goes on all the time. Every there's a time. lot of things. Yeah, there's a, I mean, it's a but there's a lot of things. And there's a woman who wrote a book called, OMG, You Think I'm Fat? I don't know if I sent that to you. And I did a whole talk with her. And so I'm going to oh, link wow. that also, all the things that we say that are so counterproductive and yeah. and, and hurtful and really don't help. So we don't yeah, have to go into that too much. We're running out yeah, of time. Well, I, but <laughs> we for, didn't talk for you, about- <laughs> for, you for you clinicians out there, that's a move that I do. Yeah. I've only had one parent really get angry with me about it. Um, mm -hmm. Some parents don't understand what I'm doing, even if I say it, but I, I'm usually pretty blunt. I don't scold them, but I just say, right. you know, I understand where you're coming from. Um, but you saying those things hurts your child and it's not going to make a change in their behavior at all. So let, let's talk about some other positive ways to do that. Old, old study done one by one of my favorite people in the world, Kelly Brownell, who I've gotten to be friends with over food. We cook together. We talk about food. We mm. text food all the time. He invented the term yo-yo dieting. He's generally credited with that. Oh, wow. Um, but one of his older, I think it was 1983, was... Uh, if I have it right, I think it was uh, adolescent girls with hypertension and, and obesity. And he had three treatment groups, treating the child alone, child and parent together, typically it was the mother, child and parent together, and then child and parent separately. And we, we call that in our program, parallel therapy, parallel treatment. And actually it was the parent and child separate that did the best uh, because the child was able to speak freely. You were able to coach the parent more because you know, oftentimes they're going to, the child's going to talk about the parent a little more freely. The parent will talk about the child a little more freely and it allows you to problem solve a little bit better. So that's one thing that, you know, and that, and again, for pediatricians, that's classic adolescent care, but we've not practiced that as much, I think, in, in this field. Um, and so, but to me, what it says, not just about treatment, to me, it's talking about those dynamics and trying to make sure that we are not causing harm by causing tension in the family and, and oftentimes trying to repair that relationship. Right. It's so complicated. And we didn't get to talk about the medication or the surgery that was part of the AAP guidelines. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you, we have any time to address this super, super well, deep topic. I, I think the 10,000 foot view right now is that, first of all, as far as we know, um, I'm married to pharmacists, so I always have to sort of say there's still so much we don't know about. They, you know, they seem to be very, very safe and effective medicines. Um, the, 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 the thing that we have to remember with that is the weight you lose with medications will come back on when you stop. So right. we use the analogy of like blood pressure. You don't get people's blood pressure normal with medications and then take them off the medication. It's the same thing with these medicines. And I think that's what a lot of the country is grappling with right now is, you know, are, are these families going to stay on these medicines long term and can they afford to? That's the problem. Um, 
but I think for some, it is a lifesaver. I, you know, I've had a patient that is actually, he's a very happy kid. And he told me, he's like, I don't really care what I weigh. He goes, but I'm, my legs hurt. And right. I can't keep up with my friend. Started one of the lower tier medications that could get covered. And over a year's time, he's lost hundred pounds. Not everyone's going to have the effect, but for him, he just feels better. He doesn't hurt. He moves better. He's able to work more. And that's where it gets down to, can we help people whose physical lives are being affected right. by, by the excess weight? And so there, there is a role for, for patients. The sad part is, for in my practice, the patients who need it most can't get access to it. Mm. Um, and, it's, and it's the same thing with surgeries, um, unfortunately. Again, insurance coverage, long-term care, aftercare, that it, it's, it's right for some people. It's life-saving for the right patient. Um, it's just a matter of getting access to it is what's painful. Right. It's really sad because we talked before how diets don't work and it's wonderful to try to make lifestyle changes. But even if you do make the lifestyle changes and you're consistent, you're not going to lose more than a pound or two a week, right? With that right. approach. That's what's safe. That's what's normal without going yeah. into restriction and diet mode and yo-yo dieting. Yep. And, and if you're 200 pounds overweight and you're having all these problems, that that's just not going to work. Right. And the medications can be a huge help with that. And um but what I'll also say is the analogy that I use is think of these medications like running shoes. Um, just because you buy running shoes doesn't mean you're going to go out and walk four miles a day. You actually still need to schedule that time to go out and do it. You still, the, the lifestyle changes, which not only will assist the medications with weight loss, but good nutrition, as we talked about, is still going to be very important for overall health long term. And that's something that they're seeing with the effectiveness of some of these medications in certain patients is actually the risk of malnutrition of like, mm. they're literally not eating enough to power their body, which is something we need to be very attuned to with children who are still growing, developing and things like that. They still need that energy to fuel their body, but they need to, so, but, so we need to just be careful with how we're using these medications. Right. And we don't have long-term safety data, particularly for children. For children, well, um, in the diabetes area, we have several years of data. Now, it also depends on how you define long-term. Oftentimes, with pediatric drug studies, you're talking like two years. Um, but I think we do have longer track records with a lot of these GLP-1 mm. agonists um, in, in the diabetes realm. Um, but, you know, again, I, and I, I'm not trying to, you know, cause controversy with that. You, you always have to be somewhat you always have to recognize we don't know everything about long-term right. effective medications. With everything that we presently know, they do seem, you know, despite, you know, the, the side effects that some have, which tend to be sort of GI related, they seem to be safe for long-term use in most patients. Right, right, right. And I guess you could say similar things for bariatric surgery, not even as safe, but. Yeah. So, um, you know, with done wisely with people that know what they're doing with long-term care and support, Barrister surgery in children seems to, for the right patient seems to be a good, safe approach to, to weight management. Um, right. right. I'm, I'm glad you're saying that because unfortunately it's become so politicized and so polarized. People are so horrified by the idea of children getting medication or children getting surgery. But what kind of kids are we talking about who would be getting that now? So typically you're talking kids with a lot of extra weight that's causing a lot of health problems. Um, I mean, you're, these are generally, not always, but they're generally being done with kids who really, really need to, to address their weight. They're having serious health problems for that. That's, that's ideally what we're seeing. Um, but again, because of insurance coverage, because of 
you know, the regionalization, you know, the, the, the lack of services for kids, the, in my opinion, and in my practice, the kids that need it the most aren't getting it. But mm-hmm. I, I talked, I talked to a patient today, um, a colleague that has had surgery. Um, I mean, it could be life-changing for some people. It's the idea of finding the, the right patient. I think another tough part compared to what we know in adults is adults are oftentimes pursuing weight management. Kids are referred for obesity, referred for weight management. So it's a little bit of a different dynamic, which is, again, I think why some of the blowback is it feels like we're doing stuff to kids versus mm-hmm. kids and parents sort of pursuing that care. Um, so it's a little bit of a different dynamic. But again, if you practice patient-centered care, you get to know your patients, you you develop that strong working relationships, then you know where they're you you know what they're what they want, and you're trying to help them achieve what they want. Um, sometimes that may not be good. Sometimes they're coming in and they want to diet, or you know they want to get to a certain body size, and it's upon you to say, you know what, I, I can appreciate where you're coming from, but that's not a very healthy path to take. If you're trying to get to a certain body size for any other reason, but, and again, you have to understand they're getting teased, you know, they're, they're being ostracized, not all, but you know, they're, they're, we know the issues right. of weight bias and bullying and teasing, and they're wanting to do something about it. And, and oftentimes we know if their motivations are not something focused on, um, you know, sports performance, better health, um, that oftentimes the weight loss behaviors they're going to pursue are not going to necessarily be good ones. And it's up to us to try to, to, to help them, to lead them to a, a better way of thinking of that. And you're not oftentimes successful and you want to be very patient centered and let them sort of guide where they want to lead. But oftentimes when you see that's leading in a way that's not very healthy, you know, we, we hear those horror stories. Yeah. Right. And I have to mention eating disorders again. Oh, good Lord. Yeah. So, you know, the um, golden, it was the uh, 2015, 2016, they wrote an A, there's an AP report about risk of eating disorders in, with children with obesity and a lot of overlapping behaviors between the two, between eating disorders as well as obesity is, you know, cl- dieting, caloric restriction with the goal of losing weight, weight talk, especially within the family, um, experiencing weight bias. I mean, all those things tend to are overlapping between the two and we, we see it every day. And, and to do this safely, we need to do a better job of addressing that before the idea of pursuing weight management. Right. And to be very aware as a clinician and as a parent that a child could have an eating disorder and still be in a bigger body. So that's been a big area of research over the past several years um, where they've they've started asking these questions a lot more. And because, you know, an, a child with an eating disorder that's at a, quote, normal weight, it's eating disorder not otherwise specified. Right. Um, but children at higher weights and bigger bodies are two to three times, sorry, they have a two to three times higher prevalence of eating disorders Mm -hmm. than those that are at quote normal weights. Um, And I talked to my colleagues around the country about this and we're all starting to screen a lot more. We've screened clinically Mm -hmm. for some time, but those that are actually doing screeners are horrified. Like, oh my gosh, I never realized. Because what's the first thing you do when someone that's in a bigger body loses weight, you cheer them you know, great job. You don't screen for disordered eating. Well, you enable them, you enable them. Right. And that's the first thing we do when we start to see rapid weight loss, we quickly, quickly screen for um, eating disorders. Um, Any size. Right. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, and, and, you know, there's, there's lots of contributors to that. There's the broader culture contributors, diet culture, 
And, you know, sometimes we have to say, how much are we contributing by encouraging weight loss or giving flippant recommendations to, hey, you need to lose weight. And there's a great, um, there's a great article that was written by a lot of research dietitians and clinical dietitians in this field um, that basically said, hey, the biggest culprit here is actually unsupervised or unstructured weight loss. Of people trying to lose weight loss on their own who aren't being told here are the safe ways that you can go about doing that. Those are the ones that are leading to restriction and overeating that then leads to disordered eating. Behavioral weight management programs actually have a, are generally, not generally, but it's basically been found to be protective against eating disorders. But they're hard to find. So. Hard to find. They're expensive. The other criticism of the clinical practice guidelines is the most effective treatments are 26 or more hours of contact time. Well, my program's pretty intensive. Right. And if all things go perfectly, over a year's time, you start to approach 15 to 16 visits. Wow. And, and that's hard for parents to participate right. in. My big research interest is, or my research over the past 10 years have been about dropout. I and mean, there's a reason that over 50% of people drop out of pediatric weight management programs because they're hard to follow. And there's also a lot of other reasons too that uh, make it difficult. But yeah, it's, it's intensive and it's hard, which I think, I think it's a decent, a very good reason for folks like you and me to have these conversations and try to find common ground and, and, and admit what there's things we don't know. And we need to recognize that and be very careful about it and, and how we pursue this. Yeah. You know, we could talk all night and we went over and I <laughs> want to thank you so, yeah. so much for doing this with me. I really yeah. appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. It's been fun talking with you and I'm, I learned a lot just from talking with you about it. It's fantastic. Oh, I'm honored. I learned a ton. I really appreciate it. Well, sometime you owe me one potato canish with mustard. So. Oh, absolutely. Must have mustard with it. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. You're welcome. It was great talking with you. you Thanks for listening to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, check out our Instagram at Joma underscore org. Check out our website, www.joma.org, that's J-O-W-M-A dot org, or email us at health at joma.org.